From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, August 1st. I'm Aaron Schachter. America's corn harvest affects food prices around the globe, and this year the forecast is bleak. Crops don't like heat, and the plants know it. You could have nice, tall, showy corn and still not have anything on the cob because it didn't pollinate well. We'll hear what that means for consumers abroad, and later the push to improve security in Rio ahead of the next Olympics. We don't know whether we're going to make it, but we never had such a good chance, and I doubt we will have another chance like this in the near future. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Food producers around the globe are watching America's grain belt this summer, and the news is not good. The U.S. is in the midst of its worst drought in half a century. And this week, for the eighth week in a row, the Department of Agriculture downgraded the condition of the country's corn crop. The U.S. is the world's largest corn producer, so a smaller harvest is almost certain to rattle global food markets. And with prices already at record highs, the drought here could mean trouble for consumers thousands of miles away. Sam Eaton has our report. Yeah, it's not really far enough along. You pull an ear off, but there's probably, uh, probably not much of a kernel developed yet. Farmer Ben Kyle's corn crop is in big trouble. His 1,600 acres in northwestern Ohio have been decimated by drought. This ground here, you know, just it's loose. It's never had enough rain to melt back together. Kyle's farm could be considered among the lucky. At least his corn is still alive. This summer's drought is even worse to the west in Indiana and Illinois. But Kyle says the end result is pretty much the same. Realistically, can't expect the stock to even produce a an ear that's harvestable, even with beneficial rains from here on out the rest of summer. The corn's already reached pollination, and it's pretty well done. Kyle expects to get about a sixth of his usual corn crop. He's already lost half his soybeans, and the outlook for the national corn harvest is getting bleaker almost by the day. Dan Bossy is an economist with the Chicago research firm Ag Resource Company. We fear the U.S. corn crop could end up as being as small as 10 billion bushels. That would be 3 billion bushels under the latest USDA estimate. And a drop of a third from the Department of Agriculture's original projections. Bossy says that's likely to trigger clashes between the country's major corn consumers, with meat producers, food processors, and even ethanol refineries fighting to get their share. And other countries that depend on corn exports from the U.S. could be in an even more precarious position. That's because the U.S. is the world's biggest exporter of corn and one of the biggest exporters of soy and wheat. David Lobel is with Stanford University's Center on Food Security and the Environment. The U.S. is so important to global production of food. It's almost twice as important for food as Saudi Arabia is for oil. So when something happens in the U.S., it really has implications for everyone in the world. 
especially for countries that rely on imports of things like corn or wheat. So far, few are predicting a return to an all-out global food crisis, like the one in 2008 that caused riots in some 30 countries. That's because national grain reserves still provide some buffer to the markets. But Lobel says that may not last. The expectation is those stocks will be built back up, but we haven't had a chance to catch our breath, really. The demand keeps going up, and we haven't had some good years of harvest to build up stocks. So the mechanism for the cushion is there, but it's, you know, we're basically our shock absorbers have been worn thin. Those shock absorbers have also worn thin for the world's most impoverished people. Marie Brill is a senior policy analyst with the anti-poverty group ActionAid. She says after the 2008 food crisis and the subsequent price spikes in 2010 and 11, the poorest of the poor have exhausted many of their tools for coping with higher prices. Things like taking on more debt, cutting healthcare education expenses, cutting a meal out of their day. Brill says while U.S. consumers spend an average of 10% of their income on food, people in the developing world can spend upwards of 70%. And even small price increases in grains like corn can put family meals out of reach. If you think about places like Kenya or Uganda where ugali is uh, made from cornmeal, it's a staple food. Or tortillas in Mexico is another good example. And all of a sudden you can't afford to buy it. You really see that impact in terms of rising poverty. Brill says the 2008 global food crisis plunged an additional 100 million people into extreme poverty. Add climate change into the mix and the global food system looks even shakier. Stanford's David Lobel says there's still a lot of debate as to whether the crisis in the Midwest is due to global warming. But he says the heat wave that's accompanied the drought is exactly what the climate models have predicted. This year is kind of an illustration of the the kind of thing we worry about with climate change. With climate change, the saying is you're playing with loaded dice now, and in the sense this year was the U.S.'s turn for a bad roll of that dice. And climate scientists tell us to expect more and more such bad rolls in the future, with hotter summers becoming the new normal. And it's the heat, even more than the lack of rain, that's got farmers like Ohio's Ben Kyle in such dire straits, especially when it hits during the critical pollination stage. Crops don't like heat, and the plants know it. You could have nice, tall, showy corn and still not have anything on the cob because it didn't pollinate well. Kyle isn't ready to blame his problems on global warming, but he says whatever's behind this year's bad weather, something is definitely changing. (laughs) I always say I I hope I can remember what normal is by the time we have a normal year, you know, because nothing's normal anymore. For The World, I'm Sam Eaton. Parched soil and unhealthy corn. Reporter Sam Eaton's slideshow is at theworld.org. In India, the power is back on, at least for now. That's after hundreds of millions of people across the country suffered through two days of what's been called one of the world's worst blackouts. India's new power minister, Virapa Moili, insists that the outage will not be repeated. But Indians are used to spotty power, so they're not so sure. The BBC's Tinku Ray is in the capital, New Delhi. Tinku, to start out, uh, you've been living through the blackouts. What's it been like? It's been pretty miserable, actually, Aaron. I mean, even though we're no strangers to power cuts, we have controlled rolling power cuts here at certain times of the day for certain periods. But this was something different. You had full power grids just breaking down. So that meant 
everything was out, not just in the homes, but on the streets. There was no traffic lights. Delhi's metro, the underground, the subway here was completely halted. People had to be evacuated off the trains. The city was gridlocked. Delhi was gridlocked. There were thousands of people out on the streets. Yesterday alone, it happened in the middle of the day. So you can just imagine what that would mean. And did uh, business just grind to a halt for two days? For some people, it did, yes. I mean, like I said, we are no stranger to power cuts and therefore people who can afford it, big businesses, you know, people uh, who own the building that uh, we broadcast from all have power generators as backup. And that is the norm for people who can afford it here. But for small businesses, they can't afford that. For them, they are reliant on the government. And so that's who is really affected. And also farmers in the uh, rural areas of much of this northern and eastern parts of India, they were the ones that were really hit hard. Many people are blaming the farmers in part for causing the blackouts because there is no rain They needed electric pumps to uh, get water to their crops. But there are lots of other theories for what's caused the problem. Uh, What are you hearing? I think uh, the farmers can't really be blamed. I know that's what many people are saying. The government will not say. We still don't know why this happened. It's a huge embarrassment for the government here. There have been some reports that greedy states were actually drawing more power than they were supposed to. But some uh, scientists and technical people who actually know about power and grid systems say, actually, you know what, this could have been human error. This could have been somebody not noticing that there was a surge or some other technical fault. And uh, that's what could have just tripped the whole system. But I think we won't know for quite a while, but there is an investigation underway and a three-member team is now looking into the problem. Now, the Indian historian Ramachandra Guha was quoted in the New York Times today as saying, India needs to stop strutting on the world stage like it's a great power and focus on its deep problems within. I wonder if that's a a widely held feeling. I think a lot of people are saying exactly that, even though the government today was saying, compare us to the United States back in 2003. It took days for uh, the U.S. to get its grid back up when we saw that massive blackout on the eastern seaboard. And hey, it took us less than 24 hours to get our power back up. Is there a feeling there that the news of this event, uh, massive though it seems, is being overblown? There is a lot of sort of talk about it being hyped up because of the sheer number of people that might have been affected. But as we should actually clarify, huge swathes of India never have power. We're no stranger to power cuts. But I think it was the sheer magnitude of the failure of this blackout that is more shocking and surprising. And that's what really angered Indians the most. The BBC's Tinku Ray in New Delhi. Thank you. You're welcome, Aaron. It's a sensitive time in the Middle East. Israel is anxious about a possible nuclear threat from Iran. The civil war in Syria is tumbling out of control. And Egypt is now led by a president who's a former leading figure in the Muslim Brotherhood. So it must have come as a relief when a letter arrived in Israel from the Egyptian leader saying he wanted to work with Israel to promote peace and stability in the region. Only now Cairo says the letter's a fake. Matthew Bell is the world's Middle East correspondent. He is in Jerusalem. Matthew, who delivered the letter and uh, where did it go? 
The news came out, Aaron, first from the president's office here in Israel, and that is from Shimon Perez's office. Uh, it started getting a lot of attention immediately because, as you mentioned, Mohamed Morsi, the new president in Egypt, is from the Muslim Brotherhood, which is ideologically, religiously, deeply anti-Israel. So here was, on the face of it, a Muslim Brotherhood, former Muslim Brotherhood leader, new president of Egypt, reaching out to Israel in an unprecedented way. Uh, then fairly quickly, when uh, you scratched at the surface, reporters started looking into this. The denials came, and, and at this point, it's not clear exactly what happened or why. And uh, who is Egypt blaming for the fabrication? In the in the official statements, there there was finger pointing at the Israeli newspapers that first reported this. Uh, you didn't hear anything specific, really. You know, you can you can start to speculate about what's going on here, whether the letter was fake, whether it was from uh, some faction within the Egyptian government uh, against another faction. Maybe the Egyptian presidents wanted to send a different message to different to different people. We just don't know at this point. Now, you have been uh, in Egypt quite a bit recently. What does this episode say about the, the government there in terms of its unity and coherence? This is the most important question, I think, about about this episode. I mean, here here is we're all sitting here looking at Egypt and, and Egyptians as well are looking at their new president, uh, the new government after this dramatic revolution. And they're wondering what direction is Egypt going? And there couldn't be more of a sensitive topic, I, I think, in, in Egypt really than, than Israel. Uh, yes, Israel and Egypt have had relations since 1979, since the Camp David agreement was signed. They have embassies and ambassadors. But this is not a normal relationship. Uh, it's very fraught. It's, it's politically uh, sensitive, is putting it too mildly. Uh, when any issues come up about Israel in Egypt, uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I think on this, this is a big question that, that people have for the new government. What's going to happen with this very important, uh, incredibly difficult relationship? Now, you know, in all the articles about this, there are unnamed officials saying, well, yeah, Egypt had to say this. Uh, I mean, it just sort of points to the uh, precariousness of diplomacy in that part of the region that someone might actually send a letter like this and then deny that they've sent a letter like this. That's right, Aaron. Nothing is, is so straightforward. Nothing is really as it seems here in the Middle East. The world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Tigers and tigers and more tigers. Oh, my. Our GeoQuiz takes us to Tiger Island. That's coming up in a few minutes on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Italian authorities this week launched a $30 million effort to restore the Colosseum in Rome. The ancient arena has withstood 2,000 years of history, but it's been showing its age recently. Large cracks have appeared and fragments have fallen off. The restoration plan, though, has generated some controversy, as we hear from the world's William Troop. $30 million doesn't sound like a lot when you're talking about fixing up one of the most famous landmarks on the planet. But faced with the euro crisis, huge debts, and a stagnant economy, Italy's government doesn't have a cent to spare. So the $30 million for the Colosseum project is coming from Diego de la Valle. He's the billionaire owner of Todd's, a luxury leather goods company. 
Many Italians worried he might try to commercialize the restoration by, say, putting billboards on the ancient amphitheater. But in formalizing De La Valle's involvement this week, officials said that won't happen. And the billionaire himself said he's only trying to help protect Italy's cultural heritage. He said his company is putting up the money because successful businesses should exercise social responsibility. And he urged other Italian companies to underwrite similar projects at other historic sites. The announcement in Rome came just days after the Italian press ran alarming stories about the Colosseum's stability. Experts reportedly discovered that the ancient building was tilting to one side. The media dubbed it the Leaning Tower of Pisa effect. The director of the Colosseum, Rossella Rea, said the tilt happened a long time ago, possibly as a result of earthquakes in ancient times. And as far as she's concerned, it's nothing to worry about. The monument is very stable, she said. Otherwise, we wouldn't have launched the restoration plan. The work is expected to last up to three years and include everything from cleaning and restoring the outside walls to opening up the arena's basement areas. That's where historians say gladiators prepared for battle and where wild animals were held before being set loose on the fighters above. Tourists won't be inconvenienced. The monument will stay open throughout the restoration. Rome's mayor, Gianni Alemanno, endorses the plan. He says it's the most significant investment in the Colosseum in decades. According to the mayor, the last time the Colosseum enjoyed a restoration of this magnitude was in the late 1930s. Dictator Benito Mussolini was in charge then, and he spared no expense. For The World, I'm William Troop. Our GeoQuiz today takes us to a place named Tiger Island. The question is, is it a volcanic island nicknamed El Tigre off the coast of Honduras, or is it a tropical Indonesian island known for its endangered tigers? Well, technically, the answer is both. But we're interested in the one in Indonesia, Sumatra to be exact. It's the setting for a new BBC documentary called Tiger Island. The film examines a controversial wildlife sanctuary there. It features Alan Rabinowitz, head of the wild cat conservation group Panthera. He traveled to Indonesia to see how the tigers are doing on the new reserve. These are Sumatran tigers, and they're spectacular. They actually have a bit of a lion's mane around them. And are they endangered? Many of the large animals of the world and, and all the big cats, they're all very, very threatened by increasing human populations and by encroachment, but the tigers are off the edge and sliding very rapidly towards extinction. Okay, but they're dangerous animals in addition to being endangered, and that's where the controversy comes. That's right. The issue of reintroducing or trying to save man-eating tigers or conflict tigers and putting them back in the wild is a very controversial subject. I'm not at all in favor. I never was on setting back free man-eating tigers, tigers which have learned to actually kill people and sometimes even hunt them. But having said that, there are many, many tigers which are captured because they're conflict tigers, tigers which haven't eaten people yet, but they maybe have eaten some wildlife, some cows, some chickens, because their habitat has been encroached on. So the government captures these animals before they start causing greater problems and even killing people. The question was, can these kinds of cats be reintroduced? 
because you can't just put them in captivity. It's very expensive keeping them in captivity. And if you just keep killing every tiger that becomes a problem, we're just not going to have any more tigers left. There's a moment in the film uh, when you're observing one of the captured Sumatran man-eating tigers in a cage, and I just want to listen to this clip. So this male one cannot release anymore. So this one kill only one person? Five or six. This one killed five or six. Oh, you can't set him free. Yeah, you're Killed five people. I wouldn't want him back in the forest either. Now that uh, tiger looks at you without moving as you're uh, looking at him, but when you turn your back to walk away from the cage, it lunges as if to attack. That's a tiger being a tiger. Seeing these tigers, these truly wild animals, which have been put in cages, versus what you might see in a zoo is a very different experience. Even the bars between us don't stop you from feeling that kind of primal fear of being prey in the face of this huge carnivore. Now, these tigers are being released on the the Tambling Wildlife Reserve. It is a very, very small portion of the tip of Sumatra run by a mysterious, wealthy billionaire Indonesian entrepreneur named Tommy Winata. But there are still people there. What is it that Tommy Winata expects to happen? Well, he's setting them free in a jungle area where there's plenty of food, plenty of jungle still available to them. We've been lucky so far with the tigers which have been reintroduced because he's only reintroduced a few tigers. Despite that there being people, tigers normally do not want to bother people if they've got plenty of land and food available. But if you kept on just introducing tigers, there would be a point you'd start getting problems. And the worst case scenario, that they would kill somebody. Best case is that they would just start taking somebody's livestock. You don't want that to occur. So we're trying to work with Tommy in figuring out what is actually going on there. One of the biggest problems is that there was not enough research going on at the site. Tigers were being reintroduced. There were people nearby, as you said, but nobody had their pulse on the situation. We're now working with Tommy to make sure we measure and monitor what the population really is, what these tigers are truly doing, and maybe no more tigers should be released at that site. It's been a success so far, but but maybe we've got to call it quits. We don't know. It's still an open book, but the experiment is really worth doing, something which I wasn't sure of at the beginning. But in the end, I think what Tommy is doing, it's with the right intent. He really is trying to help tigers in his country. That's tiger expert Alan Rabinowitz. If you're wondering why he's been called the Indiana Jones of wildlife protection, you can find out at theworld.org. We've also posted a trailer for the documentary Tiger Island with some in-your-face big cats. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. If you're in London for the Olympics, try the pie and liquor. It used to be made with eel juice when years ago when we used to do the eels, stewed eels. But it's, we don't do the eels no more, so it's, uh, liquor is just like a parsley sauce. That and more Tasty Fare coming up on The World. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. If the Olympic Games promise anything, it's high drama. And so far, London 2012 is delivering in good ways and bad. The world's Alex Galifant is there. And Alex, it seems like a joke, but badminton players in trouble? Yeah, eight badminton players from the women's double competition. They've been disqualified from the Games. Uh, They were accused of, quote, not using one's best efforts to win in their matches last night. These were two pairs from South Korea and one each from China and Indonesia. In essence, they were accused of throwing their matches. Exactly. They seem to be doing things like deliberately missing shots and serving the shuttlecock into the net. Uh, See, by losing, they were trying to secure themselves weaker opposition for the next round. Very naughty. Come on. It does seem kind of unsporting. And then you think of the poor spectators who shelled out a load of money to see some rip-roaring badminton and said they got this kind of display. Okay, Alex, any better news? Yes. Gold! Gold, Aaron. Beautiful, shiny, glorious gold. Gold for Britain. Finally today, Britain won its first gold medals of these London Olympic Games. British rowers took gold in the women's pair today. And cyclist Bradley Wiggins, who you may remember, won the Tour de France not long ago. He claimed gold in the men's time trial. It's all gold from here on. All gold. All right, Alex. Now, TV viewers got a sense of the British countryside today with that cycling competition that you mentioned, also with the rowing along the Thames west of the city. But most venues are in East London. And uh, how are they working out? Well, beyond the ongoing kerfuffle about the availability of tickets that we keep hearing about, things seem to be going pretty well. In fact, if you think back to the very first moments of the opening ceremony, there was that introductory film that swept across London landmarks. Now, at one point, the film transformed into a satellite image of East London, seen from above, with, you know, the famous curve in the Thames River. And they played this music. That drum pattern is unmistakable to anyone in Britain with a TV. It's the signature sound of EastEnders, a beloved soap opera over here. It's full of mouthy Londoners shacking up and breaking up and getting into fights over vegetable stalls down at the market. That kind of thing. You can't tell me what to do! You ain't my mother! Yes, I am! Brilliant. East London is also where the bulk of London's Olympic venues are located. It's a vibrant, diverse part of the city, but visitors to the Olympic Games might not see much of that. The venues are pretty well sealed off. Local businesses have complained that people are being quickly funneled through transit systems so they don't stop to spend any money in the neighbourhood. Simon Clark, a local businessman, says he's not seen any Olympic boom so far. No, not yet. We open up at 930 and um, we close about three, four o'clock, so whether it's too late for them to come round or we close too early, I don't know. Clark's business is called AJ Goddard. It's a pie and liquor shop founded in 1890. You get a meat pie filled with stewed ground beef, a slab of mashed potato that's scraped onto your plate with a wooden spoon, and liquor. Not liquor as in gin, although that is a very London drink. No, this liquor is a sauce that gets glooped on top of the pie. 
it used to be made with eel juice when years ago when we used to do the eels, stewed eels. But it's, we don't do the eels no more, so it's uh, liquor is just like a parsley sauce. Parsley, flour, and water reveals Simon Clark kindly not withholding the secret recipe, and people like it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Everyone loves a bit of liquor on their pie and mash. Now it's not much to look at the pie and mash and liquor combination, but actually it doesn't taste that special either. A bit of the tabletop chili vinegar helps enormously, and it is popular with locals, no doubt about it. And it's dirt cheap. Andrew Webb is the author of the book Food Britannia. He says London's pie and mash shops were a direct product of Britain's industrial revolution in the 19th century. You've got a large collection of poor people and urbanised, so these shops like this spring up to cater for that. And also you've got sort of mass transportation of the raw ingredients as well. Flour, butter, beef suet, raw meat, and those eels that were once in plentiful supply in British waters. It was a perfect storm, really, for these ingredients to come together and the customer base to come together. Since then, the age of Queen Victoria, London's seen the arrival of countless more ingredients in terms of both food and people. In modern Britain, chicken tikka masala is often referred to as the national dish, and very delicious it is too. But Olympic visitors to East London this year could do worse than get a taste of the city's history. It's pie and mash, whether you like it or you hate it. So you've got to come and try it. To be quite honest, for the world, I'm Alex Galifant in London. As we heard earlier, China got some bad Olympic press today. Two Chinese athletes were among those disqualified for allegedly throwing badminton matches. Before that, a Chinese swimmer was in the spotlight for unproven doping allegations. Orville Shell is a longtime China observer and author. He directs the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Center. Shell says many Chinese worry about how such controversies are covered by the Western media during the Olympics and how that could tarnish their nation's reputation. You know, I think in a certain sense, the Western media is biased. And I think in certain ways, Westerners are also biased. But on the other hand, I think China does bring a good deal of this down on its own head. They're still in that stage where it's very important that they manipulate their image to make sure that they come across sort of flawlessly and sort of deprives people of being able to feel the same kind of gladness at their success. Do you think people don't want to see China win? I think there is a kind of a... I mean, if you compare it to, let's say, Sweden or Canada or even Australia, I I don't think there are a lot of people who aren't Chinese who are rooting for the Chinese. So that's a very complicated psychology. And, of course, it drives the Chinese crazy (laughs) because they feel that the West in particular are denying Chinese their respect and the place in the world that they deserve. It seems to me that the same could have been said about the U.S. and the Soviet Union in Olympics, you know, during the Cold War. But part of that was just, you know, we needed a a nemesis. Yes, I think particularly in athletics, it's always important to know who your real challenger is. And there's no question about it. Of all the countries in the world, China is our main competitor. So this generates a huge amount of sort of emotion. But I think there are also much deeper reasons, and they also have something to do with the way China strives so hard and sometimes so ineffectively to win soft power. 
Soft power is usually something that sort of radiates naturally from what a society does and is. Uh, the Chinese are constantly trying to sort of curry it, to create it, to manipulate it. Is and they're, it? They're spending a lot of money on it too, aren't they? Huge amounts of money, and that's why it's often, I think, very easy for people in the West to assume the Olympic Games are just another part of this massive sort of public relations manipulation to make you think China is great again. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting, the British opening the Olympic Games was in many ways the absolute opposite, the yin to China's yang of the Beijing opening, because it was sort of so relaxed and in many ways disorderly and kind of cluttered, but humorous, self-mocking, there was a kind of a sense of, well, this is what you're going to get, and it's okay. Whereas in China, one got the sense of anything went wrong. It would be a tremendous loss of face and have huge consequences because it was so important that China do it well, do it right, and uh, make a good impression. And finally, Orville Schell, do you think what's playing out now at the Olympics is indicative of uh, the U.S.-China diplomatic relationship? I do think that the U.S.-China sort of diplomatic relationship is sort of bathed in the same bath of sentiment. And I think it's a pity because if China sort of is denied its rightful place, it's going to make relations all the more difficult. Orville Schell, a longtime China observer and author, he directs the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Center. Orville, thank you so much. Pleasure. Brazil's got its own worries about image. Rio de Janeiro hosts the 2016 Summer Games, and before that, Brazil has the Soccer World Cup. In the run-up, no other topic has commanded more attention than public safety. Rio badly wants to improve its reputation on that front. Lily Jamali reports on the program that's become the linchpin of that effort. In a city that's long struggled to root out drug-related violence, a grand experiment is underway. It's called UPP, the Portuguese acronym for Pacifying Police Unit, and it's meant to bring peace to Rio's favelas, crowded, slum-like neighborhoods where much of the population lives. In the neighboring favelas of Vidigal and Rocinha, police swooped in last November to install the pacification units. Hundreds of police officers flooded the neighborhoods, driving out drug traffickers and other criminals, Then, they set up permanent community police patrols. At one entrance of Vidigal, lights flash from the top of a police car as four UPP officers get ready for their afternoon patrol. Moments in, Officer Felipe Jesus points out a pocked concrete wall, signs of a time when bullets flew wild. Battles for territorial control by drug gangs and shootouts with police were once the norm here, as in so many of Rio's favelas. Officer Jesus is one of hundreds of UPP officers now stationed in Vidigal. They're a new, friendlier face for Rio police, who have long been viewed with suspicion and mistrust by city residents. In what amounts to an acknowledgement that they can't win the war on drugs, Rio's UPP officers are focused instead on getting arms off the streets, as Officer Jesus explains at a formerly violent street corner. Here's where there are a lot of confrontations. This was a point that was considered critical. 
an active spot to sell drugs. Now, if they're selling, we encourage them to move on. But the main focus is the weapons. The UPP seem to be working. Violent crime has fallen in the 23 Rio neighborhoods that now have UPPs. Homicide rates have fallen to near zero in UPP communities. This in a city with a murder rate five times as high as New York City. Shopkeeper Raimundo Vilar de Oliveira says Virigal has been transformed. This is a new moment. This is the first time we have police here, and really the first time we can really say we have security. But while this long-wished-for peace continues here, de Oliveira says things are not so good in neighboring Rocinha. It's hard to watch what's happening in Rocinha. Even with the occupation, the pacification units, they're having shootouts every day. So there is a certain fear for us here in Vidigal. Earlier this year, as a UPP was installed in a collection of favelas called Complexo de Alamo, Rio de Janeiro's security minister, José Beltrami, said it would take time to repair neighborhoods that have endured decades of domination by drug traffickers. The city's six million residents are watching carefully, waiting to see if the experiment works. So how's Blogger Raul Santiago says favela residents felt abandoned by the state. The neighborhoods were accustomed to having everything from basic services to vigilante justice delivered by drug traffickers. But Santiago said the real-time reports, photos and video residents sent to him as the UPP was installed showed an unprecedented approach, and he hopes social media will ensure it stays that way. The fact that the police are entering calmly is something that we had not seen before because it was a time of war. So we highlight this new way of behaving, and we stay on top of it in case there is police abuse, so we have resources to prove what has happened. But there's a curious downside to the UPP presence. As drug traffickers have been squeezed out, the order they once brutally enforced has faded too. Violent crime might be dropping, but community activist Renata Trajano says petty crime is booming. We all knew they would beat us and even execute people, so no one robbed. And so people sort of had a restriction to not rob. The parallel government was going to make you pay for it if you stole, so people didn't do it. And Rio law enforcement's notorious corruption is still around, too. UPP officers, even high-ranking ones, have been caught taking bribes. One commander was even imprisoned for trafficking drugs in a UPP community. Reports of brutality, rape, torture, and executions by UPP officers have also recently surfaced. Officials have taken very public steps to root out bad apples, but long-standing distrust of law enforcement is a major barrier to the UPP program's success. While this isn't Rio's first public safety experiment, public security expert Ignacio Cano says this one could be the first program that will actually work. This is our biggest chance ever to have a real transformation. We don't know whether we're going to make it, We never had such a good chance, and I doubt we will have another chance like this in the near future. His faith comes in part from the funding. Rio has committed to pay for the UPPs at least through the 2016 Olympics. Those who support the UPP program hope to see it last well beyond the time when the last Olympians head home in 2016.
For the world, I'm Lily Jamali in Rio de Janeiro. Visualize Rio's Olympic preparations. We have video of those affected from each of the three favelas we just heard about, all on an interactive map. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Imagine a thousand teddy bears dropping from the sky. That's what happened a month ago when a Swedish ad agency parachuted bears into Belarus. The stuffed toys held signs calling for freedom of speech. It was a stunt to highlight repression in the country. Authoritarian President Alexander Lukashenko was not amused. He fired two generals for letting the bear-carrying plane into Belarus airspace, and two Belarusian citizens have been jailed. Heather McGill is with Amnesty International in London. She says respect for human rights is at an all-time low in Belarus. This case of the teddy bears is really just the, the worst example to date. The worst thing about it is that the two men who've been charged aren't actually activists that have any connection at all with the Swedes who flew across the border. Anton Suryapin is a journalist student who simply received a photograph of the teddy bears and posted it on a website. And Sergei Basharimov is a man who works for a rental agency in Minsk who happened to hand over the keys to a flat to two Swedes who were taking part in this stunt. And so these two people have now been charged with aiding illegal migration for assisting a group to illegally cross the border of Belarus and could face up to seven years imprisonment. So we've asked that the charges against these two people should be dropped immediately and that they should be released. Now, Lukashenko's re-election in 2010 was marred by reports of abuses. This just seems more of the same, yeah? Yes, it's very much more of the same, but things have just simply got worse since December 2010 when tens of thousands of people took to the streets in Minsk in a really amazing demonstration of lack of faith in the elections. And as a result of that, hundreds of people were detained. Then we've seen, for instance, last summer, there was an explosion of silent protests around the country. But following that, the laws were tightened even more to prevent people from expressing their views in public and made it illegal for people to stand in groups in public doing nothing. And what do you think will be the uh, consequences of this in international diplomacy? Do you think Belarus will demand that uh, the Swedish government apologize? I don't know about that, but I certainly hope that in international diplomacy we give a very clear message that human rights violations and the clampdown on freedom of expression that we're seeing in Belarus and Russia is not acceptable. Heather McGill of Amnesty International speaking to us from London. Thank you. Thank you very much. The world's Mary Kay Magstad recently caught some bluegrass music in Shanghai. Bluegrass by way of Mongolia. The band featured an ethnic Mongolian mandolin player who weaves in sounds of his homeland. Here's the story. This is what you might expect to hear if you head out for an evening of bluegrass. Maybe not this. Yeah, 
throat singing certainly catches the attention of Chinese drinkers in this Shanghai bar. The singer and mandolin player is Tom Pong, or Pongjer Pong, a 28-year-old shaggy-haired ethnic Mongolian. He grew up playing classical violin, but then, to the dismay of his father, who'd wanted his son to play in an orchestra, he fell in love with bluegrass. He says it happened when a fellow student played him a CD. And uh, I'm listening to CD. Oh, I'm listening. And uh, yeah, I don't know what's this. But they tell me fiddle, mandolin, banjo, guitar, and singing have a big harmony. So beautiful. Back in Nashville, if he was in town, he would be my first call. You know, in Nashville because he's so talented. Adam Brooks Dudding is a Nashville singer-songwriter and sometime bluegrass flat picker. He's in Shanghai for now and plays regularly with Pong. He says bluegrass and Mongolian music seem to come from a similar emotional landscape. Bluegrass, I mean, is described. You know, there's、uh, that high lonesome sound. You know, and it's that country,、um, that country feel where it's kind of wide open. His other comrade on stage is guitarist Jeff Davis, who moved from California to Shanghai more than five years ago. He says he'd played rock, swing, even punk polka over the years, and he liked how open and fresh Shanghai's music scene was. Then he heard about a couple of Mongolians called Tom and Jerry who played bluegrass. He especially connected with Tom. Meeting Tom, knowing and playing with Tom was. Made me really think seriously about staying here because now he's gotten so much better. But even then, when he is only maybe four years out of Inner Mongolia, he had an idea, musical ideas that were really, really good. Is experimenting with fusing that bluegrass sound with the music of his homeland, including the almost unearthly sound of throat singing. Pong and Dudding call this new grass, though Pong is quick to admit he's not the one who came up with the idea of merging bluegrass and Mongolian music. You know Bela Fleck, he's do this long time ago, and the bluegrass music and the two are Mongolian music. It's very good. For me, I just want to try, make different things. A nod to the part of him that's Mongolian and the part that's Chinese. Jeff Davis says it's a connection to those origins that seems to be driving Pong's musical ambitions these days. Before he went to the U.S., I think he kind of had a dream of going to the U.S. and being in a bluegrass band there. But now I think his dream is kind of bigger, and it's more about figuring out a way to bring bluegrass specifically, but more generally, just music to a Chinese audience and get them to appreciate it. It's also to bring the music back to Mongolians, to let them hear their rhythms infused with bluegrass, and see what happens. First stop, Inner Mongolia, which is a province of China. Later, perhaps, the windswept steppes of Mongolia, the country, 
the place that gave birth both to Genghis Khan and to the ancient music that's giving bluegrass a new twist. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Shanghai. We have video of Tom Pong picking the mandolin. It's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter, and we will see you tomorrow. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Annenberg Foundation, the Rita Allen Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector, Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.